This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. A concentric contraction would be when you're bringing the weight up towards your shoulder, so the muscle's shortening. And then eccentric contraction, when you lower the weight, your biceps is lengthening. And the muscles are working in different ways to slow your body down, speed it up, or to stabilize. And we always have a combination of isometric contractions and isokinetic contractions happening. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll discuss what it feels like to live with diabetes. We'll learn about the power of isometric contractions. We'll explore the scientific basis for a yoga and mindfulness practice. And lastly, we'll find out about cooking with chocolate. But first, a little bit of business. If you enjoy The Tonic talk show and podcast, you'll love The Tonic newsletter. With links to the podcast and articles from the magazine, the newsletter will also let you know about upcoming health and wellness events, curated articles from across the internet that expand on the health and wellness topics important to you. There's contests and prizes and so much more. Best of all, it comes directly to you. To subscribe, be sure to visit thetonic.ca. The Tonic newsletter, you know, for what ails you. Nicole Cleaver is a Hamilton resident, mother of three, and a person living with type 2 diabetes. I thought it would be helpful to bring her on the show to get a first-person reflection on what it's like to live with the disease. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. So how were you first diagnosed with diabetes? I first was diagnosed with gestational diabetes when I was pregnant with my eldest, uh, my daughter, almost 16 years ago. And then my next daughter, I also had gestational diabetes. And then my third, my son, I also had gestational diabetes. And I had to take insulin with each pregnancy. And after my two girls, the diabetes went away. But after my son, it stayed. It's always the boys that are problems, right? (laughs) It is. (laughs) So that's interesting. So you're saying like in between the pregnancies for the first two, it did not develop into type 2 diabetes then, but then it did with the third. Was that something that your doctors thought was going to happen? Was that, or were you ready for it or did that come as a surprise to you? No, I was ready for it. It was nice to have the break between the girls and not have to worry about everything because there's a bit of an age gap between the kids. But it was something I was aware of because I do have a family history of diabetes. So your family history, is that type 1 or type 2 diabetes? Type 2 diabetes. My mom has it. Her mom had it, as well as a few siblings. So with that in mind, when you were pregnant and your doctor told you that, you know, you had developed gestational diabetes, what, what went through your head? Like, what was your reaction to it? It was a bit of fear, a bit of shock. Uh, it wasn't one of the things I had originally thought about when I was pregnant. It was just like, what can I do to make sure my baby is healthy? What are the implications of of having gestational diabetes in terms of the fetus? If it's not under control, the baby can be a bigger baby. A lot of times they're eight, nine, 10 pound babies. Um, I was lucky. My babies were all on the smaller side, six pounds and just under eight pounds. Mm -hmm but it can cause complications. And two of the three um, had to spend time in the NICU because of their blood sugars. 
Okay. And so did the doctors put you on insulin right away when it was found out that you had the gestational diabetes or did they try and control it other ways as well? With the first, we did try to do diet first, but it wasn't working. Anything I ate uh, would rise my sugar up. So we uh, had to go to insulin. So with the subsequent pregnancies, we knew that it was going to have to go to insulin for it to be stable. So sort of carrying on the theme of management of diabetes, how do you deal with it now? Because you have type 2 diabetes now, right? Correct. I take oral medication and I also take insulin once a day. So I have to watch what I'm doing, what I'm eating. I have the sensor on my arm so I can check my sugars wherever I am with my phone, which is very handy to have. Mm -hmm. Even when my kids were younger, my son loved to help me with my needles. I would put it in my belly and he would do the plunger because he liked helping me out and they'd always be, mom, what's your sugar? When I would check, you know, before or after dinner, say, and they'd be cheering me on. Oh, that's a great number. Way to go, mom. Or mom, we better go for a walk after dinner. Nicole, let's discuss a little bit about the the device that's on your arm. How does that work and, and what is it? I have a Libre sensor, and I have the newer one, which is the number two, and I can check my blood sugar readings anytime. I use my phone, or they do provide you a sensor to check it with, but it sends me alarms and alerts if my sugar is dropping too low or if my sugar is rising too high. So I can easily see where I'm at. I'm at the age, unfortunately, where menopause is close by, and one of the signs of menopause is sweating. And unfortunately, that's also an indicator of a low blood sugar is sweating. So there's been a few times I'm like, what's happening? Am I going into a low? Am I having a hot flash? So having the monitor to be able to check without having to prick my fingers constantly is a great way to stay in touch with what my body's going through. So what's the protocol? How often do you have to check your blood sugar level? I usually do it about five times a day. I do it when I wake up and I do it um, after meals and before bed. And you have the type of diabetes which requires you to take insulin. So let's talk about that for a bit. So what is that like, the requirements to take insulin, I I presume on a daily basis? It is daily. I just take mine at bedtime. For me, my nighttime control of my insulin levels is the hardest. It tends to rise. So I take a slow release at bedtime and it takes me through to the morning. And then throughout the day, I control it by what I'm eating. And I do take two pills a day as well to help out. So in your experience, what are the fears or barriers to sort of maintaining your health with insulin? It's difficult sometimes to judge. It's much easier now that I have the arm sensor, but it's difficult. Something you can do one day, like take the dog for a walk, is no issue and your sugar is fine. But say the next day, maybe the dog wants to play a bit more or you go a little bit further and it can drop your sugar down too low on you. So it's a, it's a really fine, tight rope that you have to kind of balance your way across. Okay. And what does it feel like when you're experiencing those low blood sugar episodes? It is very tiring. You can get very exhausted. For me right now, my um, typical symptom is the sweating, like the back of my neck, the hairline, everything gets really warm. But in the past, I've had it during pregnancy, my lips would tingle. There's Everyone experiences it a slightly different way. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm much 
easier to take care of myself now that I know a lot of the symptoms and what to do. My kids, my family, everyone's aware of my diabetes and what needs to be done if I'm going into a low. They know where I keep my tablets, where I keep my juice, and they know how to help me. In the past, when they were younger, I would tend to have to have the oldest look out for the little two because you do, you want to go to sleep, but you have to wait till your sugar's up to a safe level. So it's tough to manage. There were times when they were young, I'd have to call my husband home from work because I I just couldn't manage. So, you know, this is a serious health issue, right? Like when when you have these lows, you know, there's an immediate danger, but then there's sort of a spinoff danger, right? Correct. Yes. It's really important. and, And I wish more people had an understanding of what diabetics go through because unfortunately some people think, oh, you eat too much sugar or, you know, you're carrying a bit of extra weight in your belly, so it's your fault. But it's not. It's a hereditary condition and unfortunately it just happens and we have a life to live and we try to do our best for it, but having support is immensely helpful. When you say hereditary, you mean a hereditary susceptibility to it, right? Like with type 2 diabetes, it's different than type 1 diabetes, which is definitely hereditary connected, right? Correct, yes. Just because your mom has it doesn't mean you're going to get it. Correct, yeah. But it does, you're more susceptible to get it with the history of it in the family. How was your type 2 diabetes diagnosed? Because you said you had the gestational diabetes that developed into the type 2 diabetes. So like, how did you become aware that you actually had the type 2 diabetes? Um, well, after each pregnancy, I uh, forget the time frame, maybe six weeks, eight weeks after, you go back through, especially when you've had the gestational, and you have to do another check for your blood sugars to see if they've regulated back to normal. So it was at that checkup that they're like, no, your sugar level's too high, and it's supposed to be below a certain number, and it's not getting close to that number, so we're going to have to treat this as full-on type 2 diabetes. And when you were talking about your lows before, like the the technical name for it on on an endemic basis is hypoglycemia, correct? That's correct, yes. And, you know, what are you aware of? So, like, if, if you didn't treat your hypoglycemia, what are the possible impacts of not dealing with it on a daily basis? I could go into a coma and not wake up again. Oh, my gosh. Okay. It, it's a scary thing. There's been times I've had to wake up in the middle of the night and I'm down to like a 3 or a, even a 2.4 I was at one time. And it, it's scary. You've got to get your sugar levels up, but because you're so tired, you're tempted just to fall asleep. So it's a scary situation. Yeah. So, sorry, you said you were you wake up in the middle of the night, but how do you wake if you're tired because, yeah. because you're hypoglycemic? Like, how, like, is there an alarm or is your sensor sort of alerting you to the fact? Or? The sensor will alert me now, but sometimes you just wake up in a, a heavy sweat and you're like, uh, something doesn't feel right. And you're lucky if you do have that to be able to have that alert. So, you know, you've explained how this has impacted you, but I, I imagine, you know, it's also impacting your husband and your kids and Everybody else around you too, huh? Absolutely, because unfortunately, if I'm having a low, I can do everything I can possibly to not have it. But if it comes through, there's not much I can do until my sugars have gone back up to the proper level. So if it means being late to going out somewhere or having to cancel plans, it's tough on them. But they're a great support system for me, and they're so helpful. How long does it take for the blood sugar to get back up to level? So so you're alerted 
And then I think you mentioned you had tablets or you have juice. So, so what's the process? Obviously you're, you're, you're trying to put sugar into your system, but how long does it take to, for your blood sugar to be impacted by that? At least 15 minutes. And then you have to retest to see where your sugar levels are because you need to bring them up over a five to make sure that they're not going to just drop down again. So it can be anywhere from 15 minutes to about an hour or so, depending on how low the sugar level was. How frequently are you dealing with that issue? Not too bad right now. I've got a good system where I'm knowing what everything does, like how certain exercises or certain foods affect me, but it can happen two or three times a month. Okay. And I imagine like that would be difficult to sort of deal with on a, from sort of an emotional or mental basis. Are you, are you finding that? Absolutely. One of the things people don't understand is having the low blood sugars and just diabetes in general, it affects your mental health. It's a tough one because sometimes you don't think and realize that, hey, this is related to my diabetes, that sometimes I get down into a really low period. Mm-hmm. And there's no explanation for it. There's nothing that you can say, huh, that's what's doing it. And um, it's tough to regulate. And then especially when you've got a job, you've got kids, you've got the house, the husband, it can make it challenging. Are there lifestyle hacks that you do that help you sort of maintain your blood sugar level? Like, do you try and exercise or are there particular foods that you avoid or try and eat? I try to do everything in moderation. Maybe it's just me. I'm not going to deny myself a piece of my son's birthday cake. Sure. But I'll have a very small piece of it. I'll try to add some exercise before or after. We have a, a puppy now, well, a year and a half old. <laughs> what kind of dog do you have? We have a purebred English lab, Cooper, and he's 87 and a half pounds. Oh, my so gosh. Okay. It's fun to take on a walk. <laughs> yeah, I would say that, you know, I have, my dog's much smaller, but I know how much energy a dog can have, which is a good thing, too, right? Like maintaining your, your, your physical levels is obviously going to be helpful to maintaining your blood sugar levels, right? Absolutely. There was In the nicer weather, we'd walk the dog to school, and then I'd walk him back home, and then I would usually drive to pick up the kids from school because I still have work in between everything else. So we'd have good exercise. and. When it's not so great, we go to the backyard, and he's taken over the kids' zip line, and uh, he loves, you know, snowballs. So we're outside and active with him as much as we can be. Okay. Well, we have time for one last question, and that is, from your experience, what are some of the biggest misconceptions or stereotypes that you find are associated with people who have type 2 diabetes? That they eat the wrong foods, that all they, they caused it themselves by eating candy or high-sugar foods, that because they're overweight that they have it. I do have extra weight. I will be honest. I'm getting into that midpoint of my life. I carry extra weight around my belly. Mm-hmm. And people think that, oh, just eat the right foods. You'll do better. You'll be fine. But even when I did that, my sugar was great, but my weight didn't change it stayed the same. So people have a lot of thoughts that it's something that you, I don't want to say can control, but that you can manage. So I wish people would understand that it's hard on people with diabetes. It's hard on the family. We try and we do our best. Yep. That makes sense. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show and being so candid about what it's like to have diabetes. I think it's really helpful for those who you know, either they may think they have it or maybe they're fearful of getting tested for having that diagnosis come through and confirm. 
And I think, uh, in general, you've done a good thing. So thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you very much for having me. That was Nicole Cleaver. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the power of isometric contractions on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their Liquid Greens Chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid Greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy, enjoy the detox, enjoy the great taste. Purely natural, liquid greens. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Dr. Aaron Boyden, or Dr. B, is an orthopedic surgeon with a unique approach to musculoskeletal pain, blending both the art and science of medicine. As the first female orthopedic surgeon to work in the MLB and NHL, she's had an extensive experience dealing with overuse or wear and tear injuries. Welcome back to the show and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. It's uh, it's great to be back. So you're successful. You stumped the host. I am the know-it-all, right? Like, you know, that's just, that's my shtick. I know everything. I'm smarter than everybody. I have no idea what isometric contractions are. So it's always good to learn something new, right? Okay, for sure. Okay, so an isometric contraction is one where you create tension in the muscle, but there's no change in the joint ankle. So this in contrast to isokinetic contractions where you are moving the body. So let's use an example. Um, Say you're doing a bicep curl. Yep. You got the weight in your hand, and if you just hold your arm at 90 degrees, the biceps is contracting, Right. but it's not moving. So it's in an isometric contraction. So there's tension, but there's no movement of your body. Oh, I see. So you're holding. You're holding. But the the muscle's still working. So like like if you were going to hold- A plank. uh, A plank is an example of it, right? Because you're- It's a perfect example. A plank is a perfect- So you do know something. I like that. Uh, You always know a little something. A little something. So in contrast, though, a a concentric contraction would be when you're bringing the weight up towards your shoulder. So the muscle's shortening. And then eccentric contraction, when you lower the weight, your biceps is lengthening. And the muscles are working in different ways to slow your body down, speed it up, or to stabilize. And we always have a combination of isometric contractions and isokinetic contractions happening. You mean in our everyday movement? Everyday movement. So holding our head up, for example, the neck yeah. muscles have to be contracted to hold our head up, even though we're not necessarily moving our, our head in any changing position. Got it. Okay. So I think I know the answer to this, but do you need any equipment to perform isometric contraction type exercises? You need nothing. And that's the beauty of these things. They're yeah. free and you can do them anywhere, anytime. Yep. And I think that's one of the major benefits. 
they're a lot harder than they sound. I mean, like I can plank. I actually, have, I've held plank for six minutes. Can you? Oh do my it? God! I've not, no, I've not done. Okay, you win there. You there's win a, there. there's a video of me on uh, CP24 promoting one of my events where I, I did the entire interview in plank. <laughs> so okay. I'm I'm actually pretty good at it. But there's one that I dread, and that is wall sit. That's another oh, example, right? Yeah, for sure. That's another example. And uh, yeah, maybe we'll have to have a, an isometric challenge and do our interview uh, while we're holding right. So, so we're not, I'm not <laughs> suggesting we do it in plank now. But like, it's a yin yang thing. Are there some things I'm really good at, and some things I am absolutely no good at? And so I can do the plank, but I cannot do the wall sit. But if you don't have a lot of space and you don't have a, a fully outfitted gym, body weight exercise, particularly isometrics can be very helpful, right? Well, I think the main use that I find is building body awareness. And they're so safe. Just contracting the muscles, you won't believe the number of benefits. You build strength. Mm -hmm. You actually build endurance. You can improve your bone density. You can decrease your blood pressure. You can use it as a tool to help you change a habit like quitting smoking. So there's a lot of things that you can use an isometric contraction for because it. I think it also helps you kind of ground yourself and become aware of your body. Okay. Is it considered an anaerobic exercise? I suppose the longer you, you, you do it, you're still, you're still breathing, right? But it's not a cardio exercise in any way. It right? is not. No, it's, it's not a cardio exercise, but it can have effects on your cardiovascular system. So it depends. Oh, yeah? How so? Well, it depends on the intensity. So you can contract your bicep and you can just sort of twitch it. Right. And you can hold it for one second. Or you can ramp up the contraction to a maximum and hold it for six minutes like you did. So right. it can actually become quite taxing. And that's one of the interesting things about them. I think that you can do them safely because you're not moving the body. And I actually prescribe them for all my patients after surgery because they also have been shown to have a significant effect of decreasing pain. So huh. how does that work? You're the doctor, but what's the science? <laughs> about? I was about, do you know the science behind it? What is the science behind behind that? Well, I had this observation that when people were in pain, the muscles around the area of pain, so say the knee, right. uh, the muscles would go to sleep. So when you when someone had a swollen knee, I'd say, okay, contract your quad, and they couldn't do it. Right. It was just completely asleep. And I thought to myself, well, if this is the first thing that's kind of shut off because of the swelling, it's inhibited, the pain, it's inhibited, then maybe this is one of the first things we should turn back on. So I got people, say after a knee scope, contracting their quadricep. And what I found is that they had less swelling, they had less pain. Because they had less pain and swelling, their range of motion came back very quickly. And I think there's a connection between the brain and the body that is one of safety because the isometric contractions really do a lot to stabilize the system. And so when your brain knows that that muscle's working and it's stabilizing the joint, there's more confidence and it doesn't create as much of a pain signal. Do we need any expertise to do these exercises? Like, would we need to go to a trainer or go to a rehab center to learn how to do these isometric exercises? Or is this something we can kind of do on our own? You can kind of figure it out on your own because you, you can't really hurt yourself. The, the tricky thing is the cues and learning how to actually turn the muscle on. You know, okay. you, you can kind of visualize and you think, oh, like the, the small muscles in your feet, for example, like mine have gone to sleep from wearing shoes like for, you know, 60 years. So I tried to turn them on. And it was like really hard. I, it, it took me a long time. So th little things that you can do to turn the muscles on or to touch them and or tap them. Mm -hmm. uh, you can visualize them looking at an anatomy picture. And I have an ultrasound at home and I know that not everybody's going to have no, an ultrasound. I'm, sure, I'm pretty sure they don't. But yeah. <laughs> and they're not going to know how to work it. But yeah. you could go to a physical therapist and they could show you on ultrasound the muscle and you can create that mind-body connection. 
It's a really cool tool. So we have a gym in our basement that we just renovated. So I just put in a rubber floor to make it a real gym. Wonderful. The next thing we're putting in is a mirror because that way you can watch your form when you're doing the exercises. And I would imagine for something like plank or other isometric exercises, actually seeing your body posture would be very helpful to make sure you're doing it correctly, right? 100% because you can... You can see what muscles turned on. You see the change in the shape of the muscle. Right. You can also see if you're turning on muscles you shouldn't be turning on. You know. Well, if, well that's my point. Like you, you can compensate, right? Like you, exactly. people think they're doing a plank when they're actually not. Their bum is up in the air, or <laughs> yes. you know, the, their arm position is such that they're actually putting the weight in the wrong place on their shoulders in a yep. way that isn't balanced. I mean, there's more to a plank than just sort of getting into a push-up position. There's there's a lot more to it. So. I don't know. That would be my advice is to do it in front of a mirror and just kind of check yourself out to make sure that your your posture is correct in it. I would agree 100%. And if you're not really aware of your body and you don't have a good sense of how to make your muscles contract, then I would definitely go to a trainer or a physical therapist, depending if you're injured or not, so that you can um, develop the develop the awareness and learn the techniques. These are, they're very helpful. So I have a note here that says that isometrics can reduce blood pressure. How does that work and why would that be? That's interesting to me. Yeah, I, I came across this uh, when I was actually doing a little extra reading for isometrics and I thought, this is really interesting. Yeah. And so I pulled out a study that was done and they compared uh, a whole bunch of different protocols where they had people doing grips. So they would grip a ball like a stress ball and mm-hmm. they would hold it for variable periods of time and they measured, they had two control groups. They had a group of people that had hypertension who were not taking any medication and they were monitoring. And then they had a group of people that were doing the isometric exercises. And they found that the people who did these exercise protocols, which was simple gripping and holding for as little as 30 seconds a day, they had significant decreases in their blood pressure. And I don't know why we aren't doing this for everybody. Well, yeah. Is it because you're focusing on one set of muscles? So it's almost like a mantra where, where you're like, you're focused and you're tuning everything out. Is that what it's about? I think that's probably part of it because certainly just contracting and relaxing a muscle for, you know, a couple of minutes isn't going to have a massive cardiovascular effect. Right. So there must be something with the breathing and the mindfulness that comes with doing an isometric exercise that is helping people's blood pressure. So I row, that's one of the exercises that I do. And and if I don't focus... I can't hit certain benchmarks. Like I'm, I, I try and do 500 meters in under two minutes. Mm-hmm. If I focus and I focus with my breathing and the pulls, I'm using the same sort of muscles in the same sort of way. So I'm trying to maintain my form. Mm-hmm. I can reach those benchmarks. But if I'm not focusing on my form, I cannot. And I'm wondering if it's sort of akin to that where you're focusing on what you're doing and it becomes sort of a transitive state. Maybe, Maybe that's what it is. I don't know. Could be. I'm not sure. I just thought it was really interesting. And the other interesting little tidbit was uh, using isometrics to help you quit smoking. So again, I think this is the mind-body connection. I don't think you're just taking the cigarette pack and gripping it like crazy and breaking all the cigarettes, but (laughs) it's it's the distraction uh, of going maybe deeper into your mind. All right. I have another note that says isometrics might be helpful to manage osteoarthritic joints. How would that work? You know, it's a similar thing that we talked about with the acute injuries after or after surgery. Uh, I think that when the muscles are contracting, they help to flush out any congestion. Right. They give a feeling of stability to the body. And there's a number of studies that have shown that 
uh, isometrics for knee arthritis and isometrics for back pain are highly effective in managing pain. That makes sense to me because you're building the muscle around the joints, right? Which puts less pressure on the joints, which means, you know, you're with less stress on the joints. Obviously, you're not irritating or causing inflammation, right? Yes. Yes. Are there any downsides to isometrics? Not really. Unless you're a performance athlete and you're trying to build something like speed. We're not going to build speed doing isometric contractions. But I think that we should uh, consider incorporating isometrics into every routine that we do because it helps to stabilize, it helps strengthen, it helps build body awareness. And you can use it as a foundation for then improving speed. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Well, thanks for having me. It's always fun to be here. That was Dr. Aaron Boynton. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. Hi, this is Jamie Buston of The Tonic. If you enjoy The Tonic talk show and podcast, you'll love The Tonic newsletter. With links to the podcast and articles from the magazine, the newsletter will also let you know about upcoming health and wellness events, curated articles from across the internet that expand on the health and wellness topics important to you. There's contests and prizes and so much more. Best of all, it comes directly to you. To subscribe, be sure to visit thetonic.ca. The Tonic newsletter, you know for what ails you. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. My next guest, Sari Nisker-Fox, is an entrepreneur, yoga and mindfulness teacher, holistic wellness and life coach, co-creator of the Yoga Weekend Retreat and founder of Indira Wellness, which curates experiential, physical, nutritional and mindful programs for businesses to inspire a culture of living well in the workplace. And for more information, you can always visit sarifox.com. Welcome back to the show. It's been a while. How are you? It's been a long while. I'm doing well. How are you doing? Happy New Year. Happy New Year. We're still allowed to say that, I think, right? Particularly to people you haven't spoken to in a while. I think it's cool. I think all of January. Totally. Okay. Well, that's good. (laughs) So we still have a few weeks to go. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, all things considered, I think I'm doing pretty well. I think that's probably everybody's internal answer whether they're saying that out loud or not i don't know what are you finding are people okay i'm finding that people are on a roller coaster like we all are i mean one moment we're okay and we can handle what life is throwing at us and the next minute we are just kind of puddles on our kitchen floor and i think that we are all just navigating through this the in the best way that we can and sometimes it looks a little messy so, you know, our conversation today about a, a mindfulness and yoga practice is, is kind of apropos, yeah? It's actually perfect. <laughs> okay. So we'll start with perfection. When we talk about a mindfulness practice, what does yeah. that actually include? What does that entail? Well, I mean, if you just look at the word, you know, mindfulness, right? It's just simply the art of cultivating presence and really whatever we're engaging in. So, you know, mindfulness as a practice, I believe, is, you know, when you nurture the presence with 
um, regularity, right? I know that the like the vernacular of mindfulness has certainly been tossed around in you know the wellness space and now beyond. Mm-hmm. But when we refer to mindfulness in you know the wellness space, it's, I think it's not just limited to you know meditation and and fitness. It's just simply directing the mind to be more present, whether it's having a conversation with you, playing with your with your child cooking a great meal, and um, it's a state that is less distracting. I suppose the argument could be made that, you know, the need for mindfulness is is ever more relevant in the world we're living in today, right? In 2022, as of this moment, you know, I don't know if it's the height of Omicron, I'm hoping it is, maybe we're on the wane, but like, there's so many reasons why it's relevant, isn't it? You know, when I think about the relevance of mindfulness and yoga, you know, as a longtime practitioner, I would argue that it's always been relevant, but I, you know, on a collective scale, you know, I think that we're actually now paying attention, you know, in different ways and opening up ourselves to, you know, really looking inside ourselves and going inside to, rather than looking outside to feel, you know, safe and learning to navigate our emotions and to heal. And, you know, I believe, you know, even the recent occurrences, you know, over the past two years have just shone the light on so brightly on how we're responsible for our own health and our well-being. And by taking ownership of that, we can really learn to take care of ourselves in every sense. I agree. So I brought you on today to change hearts yeah. and minds, right? We're, 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 we're going to take a scientific approach, right? If people aren't compelled to try mindfulness, you know, for yeah. the potential results, we should right. maybe explain to them there actually is science behind it, right? There is some science behind it. I, you know, I, you know, there's always, you know, mixed studies. But, you know, I am always looking for more more benefits and more ways for myself and people to get behind mindfulness and really creating regular practices. So if we're going to bring in science, I mean, you know, what they are actually discovering now is that when you practice mindfulness-based activities like meditation, like yoga, even, you know, Tai Chi, that that the brain is actually producing what they call more more gamma waves, which essentially means, and please know I preface all of this with the fact that I never got past grade 11 biology mm-hmm. um, or chemistry, but that it actually helps to slow down the brain waves. It actually slows down activities in the brain that are harmful for the brain, like inhibiting and inflammatory responses, essentially. Hmm. And it also, it impacts the sympathetic and parasympathetic system that we have, right? The whole fight or flight system that we're hotwired with, right? So can you sort of like basically in, a, in an elevator pitch explain what that's about? Sure. Well, I mean, I think it's important to distinguish between like good stressors and then chronic negative stress, right? right? Yeah. We all need you know, our our brain to be in fight or flight for a short amount of time, right? It helps us to get out of bed in the morning and it keeps us sharp and it keeps us organized and focused and problem solving. But then there is the negative impact that chronic stress has on the brain, which then affects our central nervous system and puts us in a state of fight or flight like you just spoke to. You can think of it like chemicals kind of coursing through your body. And so if we bring in a mechanism like mindfulness, we can think of it like we are slowing everything down. We are alkalizing essentially potentially harmful chemical reactions in the body. 
So you've sort of alluded to it twice, that there are actual chemical changes to our body that stress induces. Can you elaborate on that a bit? Like, what does that actually mean? Well, again, I preface it with that. I am a curious student. I'm going to come clean, too. Like, after high school, I didn't take any sciences either. I went into law. but, But here I am, right? So we've both learned through osmosis, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting, right? So if you're someone that is resistant to, you know, to these mindfulness practices, really work. Well, you know, what happens, science is actually saying, well, you know, there, there could be some truth to this because yep. long-term stress really changes the way our brains, neur- like the brain's neurons communicate with each other. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is that um, over time, these chemical reactions can produce what science calls like these cytokines, which is, you know, a class of, you know, molecules that regulate the brain's response. Um, in either a positive or a negative way. So it activates your immune system to, you know, fight whatever is happening. But there's also the bad cytokines that elevate the inflammatory response, which essentially then, you know, could potentially turn on disease in the body. Hmm. So having a positive outlook and a serene, you know, personality temperature could actually, you know, help prevent illness, I guess, theoretically, right? I mean, I would love to say that this is the biggest breakthrough in science, but, you know, the question really becomes, you know, do our lifestyle choices and how we manage our emotions and, you know, what we choose to put in our body and the environment that we choose to create internally, does this have an effect on the genetic expression? It's so fascinating. Yeah, so I understand there is a study or there is some science behind the notion that, you know, we can impact our genetic makeup through our behaviors. And that is fascinating, isn't it? It's really incredible to think that, you know, life can kind of reach inside our our DNA and perhaps silence some of the genes that could change the course of our life. And so, you know, there are these, let's call them shaky studies, mixed reviews, you know, that have been going on for, you know, the past decade that finding that there may be some kind of mechanism underlying, you know, the therapeutic potential of mindful-based practices. Sorry, if only I had learned about this when I was a teenager, maybe my hair wouldn't have fallen out. You know, genetically, <laughs> the predisposition to baldness. I mean, I, I, I don't know if the studies speak to that. I'm going to have to look into it for the next time you're on the show. Absolutely. So we've covered the shaky studies, but I think you can speak to this empirically, right? Like, I mean, you've been mm-hmm. a practitioner and a teacher f- for many years. So what do you get from yoga and mindfulness? Maybe that's a way to go. For me right now, what I would say is that meditation and yoga and any kind of mindfulness activity that I'm doing, it really allows me just the opportunity to just be with myself, right? So I am directing my focus. I am releasing resistance to the shoulds, where I should be, the past, the future, and just allowing whatever is occurring to just experience that. You know, and I believe that, you know, my practice helps me to really navigate through struggle. And even when I'm feeling messy and I show up for my practices, it allows me to remain in integrity with myself. And that is, I believe, nurturing just reminds me that I can handle whatever comes my way rather than ignoring it and really leaning into it. And do you feel like, is there a correlation between your practice and, and the success in your, in your ability to, you know, to work through your struggles? Like, have you seen it? Do you feel it? 
I think for me, you know, I've been able to more often show up to situations in a way that is calmer, having a, more of a macro view of things, finding some objectivity within my thoughts, being able to focus more, being calm, being able to communicate. I mean, life is all about being in relationship. And I think the biggest shift, the biggest benefit that meditation has taught me is that I get to choose my thoughts. I get to choose how I'm going to respond rather than react. Well, I think that is of benefit. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me again. That was Sari Nisker-Fox. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss cooking with chocolate on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained, natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural, liquid greens. Hi, this is Jamie Busson. I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show and podcast, I'm also the publisher of the Tonic Magazine. The Tonic is published six times a year and is delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. It's also available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA. And if you miss it, you can also read The Tonic online at thetonic.ca. Hey, if you like The Tonic Talk Show, I know you'll love The Tonic Magazine. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Shauna Linson is a dietitian and nutritionist. She's a program developer and nutrition leader at Wellspring Cancer Support Network and enjoys seeing clients virtually and doing corporate wellness lectures. She runs practical cooking demonstrations that combine scientific knowledge with culinary education. Her demonstrations are unique, informative, delicious, and a lot of fun. And you can find a list of her nutrition classes and recipes at shaunalinson.com. Welcome back to the show. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too, Jamie. And before I forget, you have a new cookbook out, right? Yes, it's an e-cookbook, and you can order it on my website, shaunalinson.com, and it's got great recipes. Okay, so I'm excited. We're talking about chocolate, right? Yes, chocolate, one of our favorite subjects. Mm-hmm. I have dark chocolate every day. Do you? And I like to say, Naomi says, you know, one piece, one square of chocolate yeah. is, is perfectly healthy for you, which is true, except I don't have just one, and that's my problem. But having one square of chocolate really is good for you, right? Yes. Are you buying the extra dark or 
what percent? Okay, so I'm good with between 70 and 80. There are some lunatics out there that go up to 90, which to me is like eating sour chalk. But, <laughs> but 70 to 80 is my sweet spot. You? I once had a client buy me a 99%. No, it's, it's the worst. I tasted it, I like, and I love, cho- like, I yeah. love chocolate. It's, it's, it's not even chocolate at that point. No, it's not. It's not edible. It's Sorry. I'm, yeah. sure, I'm sure I've offended somebody out there. But honestly, if you like 99% chocolate, there's something wrong with you. So, <laughs> but you're very healthy. <laughs> I suppose. But at what yeah. cost, right? Like, you know, it's like the people that starve themselves and only have 500 calories a day. Sure, you may live to 120, <laughs> but, but what's your quality of life, exactly. right? Exactly. It's all about quality of life. <laughs> Right. Yes. So, sorry, I'm, I'm sure I've offended all kinds of listeners with those comments. So what is the nutritional value of dark chocolate? Yeah, so chocolate starts from the cacao bean, right? Mm-hmm. And have you ever bought cacao nibs? Yes. Like the little hard... Yeah, yeah, we nibs? cook with them. Yep. Oh, good. So they're actually just the peeled bean that have been crumbled up. And they're the literally the most antioxidant-rich food. Like, they're so super high in um, fiber, minerals, magnesium, iron. The only downfall is you can't eat a lot of them. No, I was just going to say, like, how many coconut nibs are you eating? Because they're pretty bitter. Yeah, They're so bitter. But they're packed with an antioxidant called flavanols, Mm -hmm. which are really healthy. And the good thing about chocolate, if you – we'll talk about the different types – But when you eat chocolate, it interacts with your neurotransmitters in your brain, and Mm -hmm. it elevates your serotonin level, your happy hormone, right? And studies show that that can have positive effects on, like, your cognitive function, your mood, and that's why people love chocolate. It makes them feel good. There was a study, and this is for real, where they asked people whether they would prefer sex or chocolate, and a good number said chocolate for that very reason. It really? Released, yeah. Like you know, it's less work, and, and you know, you, you may receive the same feelings. And could you have answered both? Yeah. I suppose, or, you know, that's a different show, and probably a different guest, Sean. I'm not going to put you to that task of combining the two. I'm but just a dietitian. There yeah. you go, for another day. But yeah, I mean, chocolate really does make you feel better. There's a reason why people like eating it. It does, but you do have to be careful, because if you end up up choosing chocolate that has a lot of sugar in it. And it's some, as we all know, some chocolate bars are ultra processed, right? And yeah. we always talk about choosing whole foods versus ultra processed foods. So if you choose chocolate that has, like, let's say milk chocolate. So yeah. the definition of milk chocolate would be having like 10 to 40% of the actual cocoa bean, right? Yeah. And if it's milk chocolate, the fat comes from, they put like condensed milk in there. Mm-hmm. If it's the darker chocolate, they put a lot less sugar. So there's more of the cocoa solids, the cacao solids. So A dark chocolate, if you're reading and it says 70%, 80%, as you mentioned, the ones you like, that just means it has less of the other stuff, like the milk fat or the sugar. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not really cutting fat out of my diet, but I am actively trying to cut sugar out of my diet. Mm -hmm. And so the one benefit of eating the darker chocolate, I suppose, the spinoff effect is... Everything else, like all the other chocolates taste too sweet. It's like when you have Halloween candy for the first Mm -hmm. time. Like I used to love all those, I'll call them candy bars because they're more candy than chocolate back in the day. I can't eat them anymore. Like the, I it's feel a, the same way. When I eat them, I'm just shocked at how sweet they are. Make my and, teeth hurt. Yeah. And they almost taste stale. Yeah. Like they just don't taste like 
it's a 10 out of 10 treat that I want to continue eating. Agreed. I'd rather go for the good stuff. Yeah. The problem is the good stuff's obviously more expensive, but it is worth it in a smaller amount if you can- In a can, smaller amount. I agree. If you yes. can contain yourself, and I'm not that person, but normal people who have more willpower <laughs> might be able to eat less chocolate than I do. So Yeah. And the, the interesting thing is there are so many varieties out there. Yeah. I, I love a chocolate that has something added to it, like a nut or- mm-hmm. I love if there's like freeze-dried raspberries or something just mm-hmm. to give it that extra oomph. And it actually, in my opinion, makes you enjoy it more and eat less of it. Like if it, ha- if it has a little flavor booster kick to it. So two flavors that I go for are the ones with red chili pepper in it, yeah. uh, which I think brings out the chocolate hints to it. The other is sea salt. Uh, salt and chocolate are good friends and people don't know that. Oh yeah. But salting your chocolate will make it even more pronounced. If you see those two flavors, I highly recommend either. And citrus or citrus zest. So like Mm -hmm. a lime chocolate or orange and chocolate are an outstanding pair together. They marry very well together. Lint has all, it has the salted, it has an orange peel one. Yes. Uh, Yeah. So if you like that, I would say that's a starting point. They're not organic, but it is high quality chocolate. When I bake, like I make my molten lava chocolate cakes, for instance, I do that typically in cooking demos or over the holidays. I always use the Lint Big Dark Chocolate Bar, the 300 gram. But the secret is about that bar. It's only 50 to 60. People think they're getting 70 to 80 because it says Swiss dark chocolate. It's actually, in my opinion, semi-sweet. Lint has a state chocolate, so you can get from various countries like Madagascar, and they will put the percentage right on the wrapper. So with the 300 gram bars, you can actually get, it will say whether it's 70 or 80%. But I'm surprised you're not using the Calibo to bake with. That's what Naomi uses. Calibo, excellent chocolate. That's from out west. It's like, yeah, it's actually Canadian. It's Canadian. Calgary, I think. Yep. Yeah, it originated. It's Calibo is one of my favorite, but typically if I'm doing cooking demos, I ask people to get that lint chocolate bar because I just think it tastes the best. It's just really good quality. The Calibo comes in like blocks, right? And that's the one problem. It's not thin. It's not easy to use unless you're getting the pastels, which are the little circles, which they also happen to sell. But I am really good at breaking down chocolate, like shaving it and cutting it into oh, small pieces. Yeah. That I am the Sue Baker for Naomi. I'm the one who, who breaks down the chocolate. Who so. gets the chocolate going. And if you buy little discs, like yeah. the little circles, yeah. of, you know, baking circles. The pastels, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you have to be careful because sometimes they'll put in different substances that will help it melt or, you know, it's, mm. they may have a lot of additives in there. Like stabilizers so. and such. Yeah, stabilizers. So watch out for that. Fair enough. So we talked about lint and I mentioned that it's not organic or fair trade. Want to visit that for a bit? Yeah. Why that's relevant? Fair trade chocolate. The originator of that is a product called Green and Blacks. Mm -hmm. Have you ever bought that? I have. I have. And it's produced differently under ethical standards and it's priced to give the farmers and laborers that make the chocolate a sustainable wage. So it's important, like if you're really into that and reading about the ethical standards, 
then that's a great thing to do is to buy fair trade chocolate. And again, you are paying a premium for that. Absolutely. So, so you yeah. have to you have to recognize that. It is not the same as buying, you know, Baker's chocolate. You're going to be spending a lot more for your chocolate. It is worth it, though. It is worth it. Yeah. You're really into that. It's something to look into. Yeah. We talked about fair trade, and I think we touched upon the different types of chocolates, but we didn't really cover all of them, right? There's like semi-sweet and dark, and then mm-hmm. there's white chocolate, and there's there's even rose chocolate now. There's all, all kinds of different chocolates. Are, do you work with all of them? Yeah, I do. My least favorite type of chocolate is white chocolate. I don't love it. It's actually not chocolate, by It's the way. not chocolate because it doesn't have the cocoa solids in it. It just right. has the cocoa butter and sugar and milk and... I don't love the taste of white chocolate, but I typically work with kind of in the middle. Like, I don't love a very sweet milk chocolate because I would rather control how much sugar I'm putting into the recipe. Right. So when I make different recipes, for instance, I make homemade turtles, and that recipe's in my new cookbook. Mm -hmm. The chocolate turtles, what I'll do is I will melt that lint chocolate bar. So typically I use anywhere from 50 to 70 percent mm-hmm. when I make any sort of recipe, like a chocolate dip strawberry, like the simple chocolate dip strawberries, I think are always a showstopper. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the chocolate strawberries. Are you using a dark chocolate for that? Using- yes. I actually, it's funny, Jamie, I never use the milk chocolate. Even if I don't have my the big chocolate bars in the house to bake with, I will melt the semi-sweet chocolate chips. Mm-hmm. I don't buy the milk chocolate because I just, I find that it takes away from that kind of the element of chocolate, like the underlying bitter tone of the chocolate. The only time I would think that milk chocolate makes sense is if you're mixing it with malt. It seems to do better. Like the darker chocolate doesn't go with the malt as well as the lighter chocolate. That's my personal taste, but that's my experience. I agree because it it inherently adds that sugary to the bitter taste. Right. And the umami as well, right? Umami. You have to decide, yeah, what recipe you're using. But most of my recipes go very well with the semi-sweet to bittersweet type of chocolate. Like if I'm making a flourless chocolate cake or Mm -hmm. I make a one-step chocolate cake where you throw everything into a food processor and within like two minutes, you've got your cake batter. Okay, we have time for one last recipe. Throw it out there. Ooh, one of my favorites, and I've been making this for probably 20 years, are chocolate clusters. All you do is you melt the chocolate. I typically use the microwave, not a double boiler, because it's always consistent. Mm -hmm. And then I roll in things like dried cranberries, chopped almonds. I use like puff cereal. And then I just put them in little clusters on like a parchment-lined baking sheet, and you've got a super easy dessert right there. So when you put them on the the baking sheets, just to come to room temperature, right, and harden up? or, or, or Yeah, they harden at room temperature. I try to avoid putting them in the fridge or the freezer just because then it, it sometimes they'll get that little white blooming effect. Right. So it's better not to change the temperature. Chocolate's actually quite finicky, right? Like mm-hmm. The more you change the temperature, the more you can mess the recipe up. So you have to be careful. Good advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Nicole Cleaver, Dr. Aaron Boynton, Sari Nisker-Fox, and Shauna Lindzen. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. 
To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The January-February issue is available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our new website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. But until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.